Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. This morning I'm at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I'm going to be interviewing Professor Andrew Hayen, who's a biostatistician and a professor of public health um, in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Um, he coordinates the Master of Public Health program, and he was very helpful with a lot of biostatistical issues during my PhD. So I'm really excited to be interviewing him today to kind of delve into that a bit more. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Emily. Uh, maybe could you give us a bit of a short version of your career history, how you got here, how you became a biostatistician? Yeah, sure. So I was studying psychology, actually, at Sydney Uni. See, I didn't know that. I've known you for ages. <laughs> yeah. And um, actually, so we're doing quite a lot of stats in psychology, but yeah. actually I didn't like it that much because the actual details behind what we were being taught, we didn't learn. So... I ended up taking up mathematical statistics and I really enjoyed that and it was a decision between doing honours in psychology or mathematical statistics so I chose mathematical statistics and I was in the biggest year at Sydney Uni for a long time, there were four of us, um, <laughs> in contrast to psychology which I think had 50 or 60 students yeah. and there was huge demand to get into so I did that and then I did a PhD in mathematical statistics in probability and I was then working as a lecturer or an associate lecturer actually at UNSW and I decided I actually wanted to do something a little bit more practical and so on and I didn't like some of the other fields as much so going to financial mathematics or something like that which a lot of statisticians end up going into so I applied for the biostats training program that New South Wales Health runs and I was in the second year of that so that involved doing um, three years of placements which were generally six months each and across the New South Wales Health System and in universities and then I also did a Masters of Biostats and following completion of that I went back into academia. And why did you choose academia? I actually enjoyed the ability to work on things that I really wanted to a bit more than in government, which I guess is more constrained. And you can't really choose what you want to do as much. And also, uh, I also enjoy the aspect of teaching, I guess, the next generation. And yeah, and you are a good teacher. Like there, I think there are a lot of people who are very good at stats that can't necessarily explain them you're not one of those people so it's well, definitely a strength of yours and so what kind of work did you start doing in academia what kind of things were you working on so after i graduated from the biostats training program i got a job at the injury risk management research center at unsw so that was an interesting center because it was sort of a hybrid between academia and sort of government kind of work so it was actually funded by new south wales health and the Motor Accidents Authority, as it was then called, uh, it has a different name now, and the Roads and Traffic Authority. So it was really largely looking at injury epidemiology. So I worked there for a, a few years, and then I moved to Sydney Uni after okay. that. So I have two questions. Sorry, I'm just going to jump yep. around a little bit. So at the beginning, you were saying that you were part of a large, the largest cohort, but it's obviously a very small cohort yeah. of people. So given that, and this is something I want to touch on today, yep. It's obviously a really valuable skill. I assume if you've got a good stats background and good yeah. training, there are a lot of jobs in yeah. that area. 
but it's not there aren't a lot of people going into it yeah. do you think that's a fear thing or why do you think there's not many people going into an area that obviously has such good job prospects I think a lot of people just don't like maths um, and when I did mathematical so I studied mathematical statistics and I was very much a sort of mathematical discipline rather than a sort of applied statistics discipline so different universities teach quite differently so some have a more applied focus but when I studied at Sydney University and I think things have changed now had very much that sort of mathematical focus so I think it is a bit of a fear issue and it's something I've sort of noticed throughout my career teaching uh, students in various disciplines that they come in with this fear of statistics right from the beginning and part of the job of a teacher I think is to try and calm those fears and help people to see both the worth of statistics and also to see that a lot of the stuff that you do in statistics is actually not that hard. Yeah, and so that was going to be my second question. Why do you think it's so important, especially in the health field, public health field? Well, I think because public health, I think the fundamental science behind it has largely been epidemiology, so that quantitative aspect. And so epidemiology and statistics... I guess they're two different disciplines, but they're very much interrelated. So to be able to really understand health research and the evidence behind making decisions in health, you have to have some understanding of epidemiology and bias. Though. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I might be biased because I'm an yes. epidemiologist. Yes. <laughs> and what was it that drew you to it? Like, do you have a very, like, maths-orientated brain? Does it come quite easily to you? Yes, I did. I did four-unit maths at school. And, and I have heard that you've, like, won maths awards and things. Yeah, I did reasonably well at uni. <laughs> and, yeah, I, that, that's how I think, I guess. Um, I'm not averse to other ways of looking at things, but I guess my natural inclination is sort of more quantitative approach rather yeah. than qualitative. And so do you have any advice for, like, people that come in and they might not necessarily think the way you do so... You know, there is a thing, there is the fear, but people always say I don't have a natural maths brain. But I still do, not being a maths brain myself, you absolutely can learn it. You might not get to like the Einstein level, but I think it's definitely something that could be improved upon if you train. So, do you have any sort of tips for people that maybe it's not a natural skill for them, how to start and get in? Just to start, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think one of the issues is that trying to look at things, trying to understand what formulas mean and so on. Most of the sort of basic formulas that you learn are really just things such as all you need is division and multiplication, subtraction and yeah. addition and I could do that. <laughs> yeah. And everyone can do that. And I, I think sometimes not being blindsided by formulas and yeah. so on. So I think also looking at trying to if you find one way is difficult to understand, so if you're using a particular textbook, have a look at a different textbook which might explain it differently or talk to people, do, try and do lots of examples. Those sorts of things are really good. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, especially the different textbooks. I've yeah. got a few that I really like now because they explain things quite simply. Yeah, and I think 
I think some take a sort of more mathematical approach with lots of formulas, others have more wordy explanations and I think it's sort of a bit of a, a personal preference about which ones that you find easier. One of the other things that I think a lot of people find hard is using statistical packages and so on. Yeah. I think that can also make it very hard to learn. So when I learned statistics, we had to do not everything by hand, but that's how we sort of learned how to to do. To I can't do, do stuff by hand. Sorry? I can't do stuff yeah. by hand. I've always had stats packages. And I, I think certain statistical packages are very hard to learn and they're not intuitive and so on. So I think trying to do things some basic calculations just using pen and paper and a calculator can really help as well yeah so you can actually see the mechanics behind yeah just for some basic things and then later on it things get too hard to calculate by hand so you need to use the statistical package but i think sort of trying to do some things by hand really helps yeah, that's a good idea. I'm actually going to go and try and do a bit of that to refresh after this. So I want to hear about your work here, but maybe could you touch on one of your favourite one or two projects that you worked on maybe when you were at University of Sydney or University of New South Wales? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the nice things about being a statistician is that you get drawn into every different area. Yeah, it's so true. Sort of like clinical area. So I've worked on chronic disease, infectious disease, mental health, I've worked on things such as perinatal epidemiology as well as end-of-life care. So it's quite hard to choose some favourite examples, but I think one would be some of the work that I did at Sydney Uni especially, but I've continued that on, is in the general area of screening and diagnostic tests, particularly monitoring of disease, so follow-up tests and so on. So. One of the reasons why I really liked that was because there was not really much of an evidence base about if someone has an issue such as, say, they've got cardiovascular disease, so they've got high blood pressure or high cholesterol, how often should that person be tested? So some of the work that I did with some colleagues at Sydney Uni was we looked at, for example, how often should someone have their blood pressure measured? How often should they be have to go back to their GP and so on? So it kind of sounds like a simple question, but there are some difficult issues associated with it because there's generally not good randomised control trials that look at specifically at that. It's also an interesting issue because follow-up testing has a huge um, cost on the health system. So it's one of the biggest costs, actually, because... Yeah. People often have an ongoing relationship with a doctor. They might have to spend years and years following diagnosis of of disease, going back for testing. And pretty much for most diseases, um, the clinical guidelines are largely evidence-free. So one of the projects that we did was we looked at... We actually looked at a randomised control trial that had been done for people who had a transient ischemic attack or a stroke and we then looked at the frequency of follow-up that could be detected to see what um, how frequently essentially people needed to have their follow-up and so we started to get a bit of evidence behind that we also some of the other work that we also have done has been looking at what makes a good monitoring test why should you actually choose one test over another 
Yeah. So stuff that has real implications that you yeah. can see. So another project um, that I've really enjoyed working on, and I'm still working on, is being a project with the Ted Noss Foundation. So the Ted Noss Foundation is uh, an adolescent drug treatment centre in Sydney, and they've been collecting data for about 15 or so years. And one of the issues that they've had is that they don't know what happens once children leave drug treatment. Once the adolescents leave drug treatment, what happens to them? So they're not followed up, sort of thing? No. So one of the things we've been able to do is by linking the Ted Noss data with a whole bunch of other different data sets, we've been able to see what are some of the long-term outcomes of drug treatment and what happens to, to those people who go into drug treatment. So that project is still, it's very much where just got the data and starting to analyse it. Um, it's been in train for about three or four years. Yeah, that sounds really interesting though. Yeah, and it it's a nice project because it's using data that already exists and then adding value to it. Yeah, I like that too, yeah. trying to use things instead of yeah. collecting things and yeah. trying to use things in a new way. So we might move now to, I want to talk about the um, when you were the president yeah. of the um, Epidemiological Association, but maybe we'll jump to UTS. So you've yeah. moved here and you're running the Master of Public Health yeah. Program. So maybe you could tell us about the Master of Public Health Program here and sort of your ethos, what's behind it. Um, yeah. I'll give you a plug and say, I know you have amazing staff here. So that's <laughs> one plus already. Yeah. So the Master of Public Health Program is fairly new here, so it started in 2016. So we've had a few graduates now. It's a little bit different to, I guess, some of the other public health programs. So it has very much a philosophy looking at the social determinants of health. We have an 18 month program. So we have eight core subjects, so it covers the standard sorts of things, but yeah, it's very much about that ethos about looking at the social determinants of health. And so what are your sort of aims in the next five years? Did you sort of come with a plan or are you just taking things as they come? For the public health? In general, general? while working here, what were you sort of hoping to achieve when you came here? So I guess a couple of things. So I also... uh, with Melissa Kang, who I think you've interviewed, I have interviewed previously. So we also have responsibility for a Bachelor of Health Science program, which is also in its third year, and the first cohort will graduate next year. Oh, congratulations. Is, yeah, so that's been a big role, rolling out an undergraduate program. So on the teaching side, finishing that up with the MPH, we're also starting up a professional placement, uh, which is has been quite a lot of work. With Bachelor of Health Science, all of those students have to do a professional placement. Okay. So we've rolled that That's out really this year. And the students, from the feedback that we've got, are finding that incredibly valuable. So on the teaching side, some of the other things I guess that I really want to achieve is to increase the numbers, in, particularly in the MPH. Um, so it becomes more sustainable, developing more electives in the MPH, including some specialisation. Yeah. Particularly in areas that UTS has strength in, so areas such as sexual and reproductive health. So we've got quite a lot of people who work in that yeah. area. Um, maternal 
and child health as well is another area. Hopefully in epi and biostats. In in research side, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing is working on university student mental health and their health generally. Yeah. So one of the things I'd really like to do is to establish a data linkage project, so linking health data with university student enrolment data. Yeah. Because student university student health um, I think there are big issues with students' mental health in general. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'd also like to see whether there are particular groups of students who have particular issues, so whether it's international students, research students. So again, going back to some of the stuff I was mentioning before about data linkage, it's really a nice use of existing data to be able to see what, you know, like to be able to see things in a cost-effective way um, to improve health. Yeah, and I think that's a really important issue, um, university student health, and also um, mental health in academics. Like, you hear so often from students things like, you know, even when they're not working, they, there's that constant guilt, you know, and like when you're doing yeah. your PhD, it's, even if you're not doing anything, yeah. there's this guilt, constant yeah. guilt that you should be doing something. Yeah, yeah. I think that can really wear you down yeah. instead of being able to, to sort of switch off. Yeah. And I hear that from students all the time. Yeah. And we had an ECR lunch the other day um, where I work and they were talking about stress in terms of, you know, you get students who have a good amount of stress and it motivates them, but then you get other students who overstress and they end up failing the subject because yeah. they're too overwhelmed. So I just think it's such an important area. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good work that could be done there. And I, I think in contrast, well, not in contrast, but even more so than when I was a student, particularly an undergraduate student, students now are working. Yeah. A lot of them work full time, particularly in a place like Sydney. It's very expensive yeah. to live. They also have, I, I think, more so than when I was a student, um, the difficulties of getting a job and a good career um, without sort of end up, you know, in casual work and so on has become yeah. much more difficult. Um, for research students, I think the expectations are much higher in a lot of ways than. Yeah, it's like the baseline's increasing, right? Yeah, I think so. And that's also true for early career academics, I think, as well. That When I sort of did my PhD, we weren't expected to publish several papers. And, you know, you largely had to write your thesis. And if you published some papers, that was just a bonus. Yes. Whereas now, now I sort of see research students sort of under this pressure publish several papers out of their PhD because otherwise they're worried that they won't get a job. Yeah, yeah. I definitely felt that pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it's... I mean, in contrast also, like, to the people who are, like, of my PhD supervisor's generation, they had a... I, I would say they had it much easier, but the expectations were much different. They, they sort of had more time to reflect and publish. Yeah, to sit and, to sit and think about things in a bit more detail. Yeah. So I might just quickly change uh, tax for a minute. I never know if yeah. John Cowdell told me once it's yeah. tacked or tacked. Something tacked. about a boat. Tacked. I think there's something yeah. to do with boats. Oh, sorry, that's a bit of an yeah. aside. Yeah. Um, so you were the president of the Australian yeah. Epidemiological uh, Society. Is it Society? Association. Association. Yeah. I'm a member. I should yeah. know that. So first of all, could you please tell us what that is? And then maybe talk to us about why having a role like that was important what you got out of it? 
Yeah, so I guess so the AEA was actually a, a splinter group from the Public Health Association oh, originally. Didn't know that either. But in a good way. Yeah. So it was the history of the association was that it was founded to promote the interests of epidemiologists and also biostatisticians in Australia. So the association largely represents epidemiologists and biostatisticians. It runs an annual conference, which is, its, I guess, its main event. It also provides career support for early and mid-career academics through a couple of ways. So it has, um, for early career academics and mid-career academics, there are uh, travel scholarships that it has. And also for research students, it provides funding to go to the, the conference. So the role, it had a few different aspects to it. I guess one was this sort of strategic aspect, and then there was also a more operational role. So working with council, so I had the pleasure of working with a wonderful council and making sure that the association was financially viable, that a conference was organised. So one of the other things that happened, there was a suggestion of my successor as president, um, Anne Cusp, and this happened this year, which was to change the early career and mid-career travel awards to open them up largely so that people in the government sector and outside of academia could apply for those. Yeah, that's a good idea. So they've largely been based on people's track record, but someone in government... Would have a very different track record. and very different expectations in their role and so on. So that, that was a wonderful thing that happened. And how did you get the gig? Did you have to be nominated because you're awesome or did you put your hand up? No, so the previous president, uh, she had to leave, retire early So I from that role. So I took over because I was the vice president. Okay. Yeah. And what makes you, like I assume it's extra work on top of, you know, yeah. you're already very busy research yeah. and teaching. What drove you to actually be involved in something like that? I think um, having involvement with a professional organisation, it, it helps you to meet lots of different people um, so you get that sort of benefit of I guess it's you know sort of formally a networking benefit but it's also just a nice group of people to work with everyone on council is really nice but I guess also just one of the other benefits is being able to give back to an organization and to help foster the careers of earlier career um, epidemiologists and yeah. statisticians. I know you're very passionate about that. You do yeah. very well. Uh, so I'm just conscious of time. I say that a lot when I listen back to these interviews. I should stop yeah. saying it. Um, do you have any sort of final sort of lessons, learns or things like advice you might have for early career researchers or someone doing a PhD? Or just some general bias stats advice? <laughs> it's a big question. Also some general bias stats advice is it's never too early to go and talk to a bias statistician. Yeah. I think it's always much better to go and talk to a biostatistician before you embark on any research. Yeah. Um, so even before you collect data? Before you collect data. Um, so biostatisticians can give you advice with study design, but also how to manage your data and so on, those kinds of things. And 
I think there was a famous quotation, which is, you know, that you don't want the bias or the statistician coming in to do the autopsy. I like that. (laughs) But I guess just approaching a statistician early, if you're a PhD student um, and you're doing a heavily quantitative project, making sure, you know, possibly the statistician's on as a co-supervisor or in that kind of role. Um, I, I guess with my career advice is, um, it's a bit of a cliche, but find something that you're passionate about because I think that always makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Um, also be prepared. I think if you're interested in going to academia or even in any role really, you have to get used to rejection, <laughs> a lot of them. You really do. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, some people sort of keep count and have done these sort of CVs where they list all of their thing, jobs they have got and also jobs they're applied for and haven't got yeah. um, and grants and stuff like that. It's an easy thing to say that you have to develop a thick skin. Uh, but no, but I think it does actually help because I will just tell yeah. everyone that I applied for an ECF uh, last year yeah. and I didn't get it and I didn't think I had a good chance. Yeah. But even, even though I didn't think I had a good chance, I still took it really hard when I got the news. Yeah. But then hearing you say that kind of normalises it and yeah. sort of takes some of the sting out of it yeah. for me. So it does help. Yeah. I mean, I've applied for jobs and haven't got them. And like every academic, had papers back with really nasty reviews <laughs> that make you question your worth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think now that I've sort of been in the area for a lot longer, I'm a bit more resilient. But even... Even now, I still get quite upset sometimes. Yeah. Like not as probably not as much as I used to, but sometimes, particularly with a research student when they've done a really good job on a paper or or something like that, and just gets rejected or they get unnecessarily, I think, harsh. Oh, that's your protective. That's your protective instinct coming in. That's nice. Yeah, I think also. Um, yeah, so I think. Developing that resilience is really important. I think another thing is thinking about if you want to have a integrated academic role, if you can get involved in some teaching it during is fun. your PhD. Yeah, I think I think sometimes what people do is that because the PhD is so much concentrated on doing research mm-hmm. and so on, it can sort of be you might sort of forget. You know, if you want to move into an academic role, that you'll need some teaching experience as well. And uh, having sat on a lot of panels, I know that teaching experience is viewed very favourably. So even when you're in your PhD, to get some of that teaching yeah. experience when you get out. Yeah. So you know, if you can give some lectures in an area of your interest in a subject that might be relevant, or take some tutorials. Mm. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. I was lucky enough, you and Anita pulled me into teaching in yes. my last year of PhD. Um, and I think that was, yeah, it was helpful, helpful for me yeah. to get a job afterwards. Yeah. I think also trying to have some sort of role in professional societies, so going along to meetings or a lot of societies have a student role, something yeah. like that, just to go and meet some people. I, I think it... It's easy when you're doing your PhD to sort of think that where you're doing your PhD is the best place and the only, the only place, place in the world. <laughs> yeah, and 
one of the things I think is really beneficial for people, and I understand often it's not like possible because of um, family reasons and so on, but is moving away from where you did your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Going to somewhere else, seeing somewhere else how they do things and not getting too comfortable in the same spot. Yeah, it's good advice, but it's scary as well, even with yeah, our yeah, family responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do like our comfort zones, or maybe that's just me. No, no, I mean, I, I think I do as well. and But I do also think in the long term it really helps. Yeah, to get that broader experience. Yeah, John Caldo, who's one of my PhD supervisors, at the end of my PhD, he said, get as far away from me as you can now. But, yeah. like, exactly in the way that you're saying, yeah. to get that wider experience. Yeah. And that was one of the great things for me, actually. When I went and did the biostats training program, I got to work at five different places. And just that sort of experience in different topic areas but also working with different people is really valuable yeah i think it's yeah it's one of the strengths of that program it's still yeah. running if anyone's interested yeah um and maybe just to wrap up um cool. i don't know if i prepped you for this oh i gave you the list um yeah. do you have a favorite book or a movie or something that you've sort of seen or read that's inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world so we're actually reading a book called population health science okay. um, we're having a reading group Oh, I like that. Yeah, here at UTS at the moment. Uh, is it for staff yeah. or students or everyone? Just, it, it's mainly staff who are coming along, but yeah. also for um, research students. And so this is by Sandro Galileo and, so, and Catherine Keyes, I think, are the author's names. And it's sort of like a modern update of Jeffrey Rose's papers on, um, from the early 1980s about population health and uh, about how so his papers were called sick populations and sick individuals i think and it's sort of about largely about how you can change population health and taking that focus so the jeffrey rose kind of example was if you just shift the distribution say of a risk factor such as blood pressure to the left that can actually be much more beneficial to the overall population's health than large changes to people who are extremely high risk. Yeah. And so it's focusing on that kind of concept. Yeah. And so you guys, how long has this been running? This Is it like a book club? Yes, we do a chapter every fortnight from that book. I might um, have to steal this and yeah. take it to Macquarie. It's a great idea. Yeah, so it's just a nice thing because uh, it brings everyone together. Yeah. And... Everyone takes responsibility for leading one week. Yeah, I like um, it. Book club and yeah, it's really nice because we all learn from each other, and I think also making sure that everyone has to be the leader for a chapter sort of increases people's buying. Yeah, so they don't just yeah. come and one person's leading it. Yeah. Excellent. Do you have any last final messages you want to get out to the world, or you feel like you've depleted all of your wisdom yet? Um, yeah, I think I probably have, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think don't, don't I think be afraid of statistics. It's lots of fun. And, yeah, that's a good take yeah. home. I like that. Uh, all right, well, thank you for thank joining you. us today. I really appreciate My it. Pleasure. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening.